And so if we are to enjoy good and pleasant unity, then the Word of God must come to us with the force and the challenge that we make sure that we enjoy and know humility in Christ. Good afternoon. You're listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of the Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. Thank you for joining us today as he opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Coming towards the end of this uh, short series in the Songs of Degrees, we have this Psalm 133. And there's just one more, this Psalm 133. It's a song of degrees of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. As the dew of Hermon, and as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. Amen. We do delight again in the public reading of the Word of God. Uh, this psalm is obviously a celebration of the unity that is enjoyed amongst the Lord's people. As they would sing this psalm, there was a, a very visible manifestation of that unity in the actual walking of the pilgrims to Jerusalem. For as they would come from village to village and town to town, there would be that physical symbol of walking together towards Zion, towards Jerusalem for the celebration of the feasts. That is the simple concept of unity that we have, not only in the Word of God, but in, in general usage of the term. Unity is seen, if you like, in commonality. People in unity, they share something in common. Unity is a shared interest, a shared focus, a shared purpose, a shared passion. And thus we see people in the world today uniting together around, around sport, perhaps. In the United Kingdom, uh, the sport of, of soccer again, uh, a number of the teams will have the very term United in their title. One of the most popular teams, sadly, is Manchester United. Uh, and the ideas of people coming together with a, a common focus of purpose, unity around some particular common interest. They might unite around political ideals. And so you'll get men's clubs and you'll get such like things or, or popular culture and you'll unite around those things. That's the common understanding of the term. Of course, in the New Testament, we read terms like one mind, one accord, one spirit, unity in the oneness of focus, of heart and purpose. Unity. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The Word of God has plenty of references to disunity and its effects. From Genesis 13 and the strife between Abraham and Lot's herdsmen to Moses and the effects after the Exodus with their murmurings and disunity. And you see the nature, the presence of disunity, and you see its effects. Many years later, James would speak of the effects of disunity and say, For where envying and strife is, 
There is confusion and every evil work. Paul recognized such disunity as marks of carnality and not spirituality. We read in the men's prayer time on Friday evening, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, For ye are yet carnal, for as there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Carnality, fleshliness, is seen in the position of divisions and strifes within the church of Jesus Christ. Disunity is not spiritual. Disunity is always carnality. Disunity is a mark of, of sin within the congregation of God's people. It is carnal and it damages the work of God. Now you'll appreciate uh, that I am not at this point discussing the important subject of the need for separation at times. I'm speaking about disunity among those who, who are the people of God and not a separation over truth, but a separation because of envies and strife and divisions. In Proverbs 6, we have a list of things that God hates, one of which, of course, is he that soweth discord among the brethren. The Word of God says it's good and pleasant for brethren to dwell together in unity. And in equal force, it says it is unpleasant and carnal for men to live together in disunity. It is very sobering, I believe, to reflect upon church history and see so much division. Despite the plethora of evidence showing the negative impact of division and disunity. But now, as we look at this psalm, it is often the case that we discuss unity by highlighting the ugliness and the negative impact of disunity. So we take the subject of unity and turn it around and look at the subject of discord and disunity. But in the psalm here, the psalmist is highlighting the positive aspect of spiritual unity. The pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a, a happy time of, of feasting and celebrating and reunion. Families coming together to rejoice in the religious feasts. Thus the psalmist is inspired to sing, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. The behold calls us to look at this with attention. So common is division and disunity. It is a, a wonderful thing to look upon unity, to behold it, to consider it, and to see that which is good and pleasant. So two things I want to leave uh, before you, just as we outline the psalm tonight initially. And that is that the psalmist, of course, commends unity. The psalmist here is commending unity with these two words, behold how good and how pleasant. The word good is the standard general word for good that's used in, in, in a great variety of ways in our Old Testament. It speaks of something that is morally excellent. It is, of course, a word opposite to bad. Bad, of course, referring to the aspect of sin. But here something is good. It is, it is of moral excellence. But it's also of practical benefit. Morally excellent and practically beneficial. As we saw, disunity to be sinful and destructive, so unity is righteous and useful. That's the contrast here. You know, we see in the, in the Scriptures, whether it be in Genesis or whether it be in the Epistles, where you have disunity, you have sin. Where you have disunity, you have destruction. But where you have unity, you have that which is righteous and useful. Unity is good for ourselves. It's good for others in the church. It's good for others in the world around us. Unity 
is a good thing. It's good when brethren dwell together in unity. But it's also pleasant. How good and how pleasant. Something that is pleasant is something that provokes pleasure in your soul. You know, whether it be a pleasant meal or a pleasant garden to look upon, the, the flowers and the shrubbery, whatever it might be, it is something that provokes pleasure within your soul, within your consciousness. And thus the Bible speaks of the harp as being pleasant. The name of God is pleasant. The spouse and Song of Solomon is pleasant. Riches are pleasant. Praise is pleasant. Indeed, in Psalm 16, the Word of God says, Thou wilt show me the path of life in thy presence as fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures, same word, pleasures forevermore. Unity is a pleasant thing. Unity is commendable for its goodness, for its pleasantness, and for its effects. Unity, of course, is pleasant to God. It is God's purpose for his children to dwell together in unity. It is the very will and purpose of God for their brethren to dwell together in unity. It is also pleasant to man. It is good to rejoice in peace. Whether you're talking in the, in the secular realm of a country at war, civil war, it's happened in this land, it's happened across the world, Civil war is a time of great turmoil and distress for those suffering that experience. If you've lived in the context of civil war within a church, it is a time of great distress and sadness. It is a horrible thing to go through. And thus, unity is indeed pleasant, good and pleasant. It is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And also you turn to, to Hebrews 12 very quickly. Just to point this out to Hebrews 12. You see, in light of this, that it is our responsibility and duty to pursue peace. At this point, I'm just taking a slight diversion away, but I'm just drawing the application. As the psalmist commends this unity, then we do see in Hebrews 12, verse 14, the instruction to follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. And so often we turn to that text to encourage the people of God regarding their duty to be a sanctified people. They've got to follow. The word to follow there speaks of, of chasing after the animal in the hunt. With all of your heart and vigor, you're pursuing after holiness. It's a very active verb. And yet at the same time, the text says you're to do the same with peace. You're to actively pursue peace. And you see that, of course, in the, in the Word of God, that if there is a, an offense caused by you or brought to you, it is your responsibility on both occasions to try to resolve the, resolve the situation. Now, the Word of God understands that it is not always possible. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes you do all you can in your power and you are not able to produce that pleasant unity. And thus you may do all you can, but it may not be possible. And the Word of God thankfully has that balance, if it be possible. As much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. And so it is, again, a commendable thing. 
It's a beautiful thing to behold when you, when you reflect upon the people of God and you see this good and pleasant unity. The psalmist commends unity. But in the second place, the psalmist compares unity. And there are two comparisons that are used in the verses that follow, verses 2 and 3. He compares it to the oil or the ointment, and he compares it to the, to the Jew. Again, that's spelled D-E-W. I know it's pronounced do, but I just can't say that. It's definitely Jew. And so he compares it to these two things. The ointment or the oil or the, the Jew that's mentioned in verse, number, in verse number three. The oil, of course, in verse two is speaking of the oil that anointed Aaron as the high priest. It was perfumed. The pleasantness, the goodness of unity is, is like that perfumed ointment that as it was anointed of, of Aaron, he would have carried it about with him and that blessing would have enjoyed by others. It is itself a precious thing, verse 2. It is like the precious ointment upon the head, something that is admirable, valuable even. Unity is something to be prized, precious, rare even. But because of its rarity, then you have its value. It's precious. It's also something that's poured out, poured out upon all. It ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment. As every part of the priest was touched by the oil, so true unity is enjoyed by all. He's making a comparison here. The unity is enjoyed among the brethren, is enjoyed by the entire body of God's people. And as it's enjoyed, it's precious and it's pleasant. Of course, the image of the anointing of the priest has caused many to see that the essence of unity is the Spirit of God being poured out upon God's people from the head that is Christ. And you see the picture there. Again, the Spirit of God is pictured in the oil. We see that in the Old Testament. And the Spirit of God is poured out from Christ the head down over the body to the hands, even to the feet. The very skirts of the garments are mentioned here. And that is the essence of unity. It is the Spirit of God. It is the unity of the Spirit that is in the bond of peace. It's a beautiful type. But primarily, the psalm is comparing the pleasantness of the oil with the unity of God's people. He's saying, how good and pleasant. It is like the precious ointment. This ointment that is indeed something that is good and that is precious and that is upon all of God's people. But he also compares it with the, with the Jew. And there's a very striking similarity of types in the two verses. Hermon was the largest mountain in Israel. And the Jew was, uh, Herman was synonymous with enjoying this, this Jew that came from, from heaven. And the psalmist is saying, uh, he's, he's drawing a picture, that the Jew that comes upon the mountains of Zion is that that comes from Herman, from the, the, the lofty mountain down to the lesser. Uh, again, it's a picture that our unity comes from God and Christ, and then down upon the people of God in Zion. But the Jew, of course, is a symbol of God's favor. The king is mentioned in Proverbs 19, verse 12, regarding his wrath like the roaring of a lion, but his favor as the dew upon the grass. The Jew is a symbol of God's favor in the dryness of the Near East. It was the Jew that revived and refreshed. So the Jew was a symbol of God's blessing. If you enjoyed the Jew, then you were enjoying the blessing of God. And that Jew itself, which then was a benefit from God. It came as a blessing of God, and it gave blessings as it came. And so it is with unity. 
The people, they came together to Zion. They gathered together as the pilgrims. And as they came, their coming was like the Jew. The unity of the people is like the Jew as it shows the blessing of God to Zion. Unity is a mark of God's favor. But it also is like the Jew as God is pleased to bless through that unity. When people are united together, God is pleased to, to bring his blessings. And Jew, it revives, it refreshes, it brings blessing. And so does unity amongst the people of God. Unity that comes from the blessing of God. Unity that comes as a blessing out of Zion. Blessing that comes from the gospel of Christ and the cross. Of course, Zion, of course, is the place of God's presence. We've seen that in these Psalms. It's a place of sacrifice. The blessing of God comes in virtue of the cross of Christ. And that blessing is seen in the presence of unity and the blessings that come out of unity. Blessing that is given to all of God's children. Life forevermore. Again, that's the blessing of God. Eternal life is not enjoyed by us individually only. It is enjoyed by us individually. But when you get to the book of Revelation, you will see that eternal life is very much a corporate experience. If you want to spend eternity on your own, enjoying eternal life, you've missed the point. Grace brings God's people together. And we rejoice in that now, and we will rejoice in it forevermore as we, in a united sense, gather together around the throne. So in summary... The psalmist, in the joy of poetic form, is singing to us that unity is beautiful and beneficial. It comes as a result of God's blessing, and it brings blessings to others. He's teaching New Testament doctrine in Old Testament poetry. Unity that comes to the people from the head that is Christ. Unity enjoyed by all the people, all the body, as all are anointed with the Spirit's. The unity of the company is a mark of God's favor and brings blessings to others. And so I'm just repeating all of those things to give you an understanding. Unity, beautiful, beneficial, coming from God's blessing, resulting in blessings to others. But it's in light of the, the poetry. It's in light of the, the psalm that we see that surely... It is of vital importance for the local church to endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Brethren, yeah, it applies to your families. There's no question it applies to your families and the uh, desire for families to be united together in the things of Christ. But in our families, there'll be Jacob's and Esau's. There'll be Cain's and there'll be Abel's. And thus the unity that is particularly involved here in Psalm 133 is the unity between those who are brethren in Christ. There can never be true unity in families where there is not unity in Christ. But there will be true unity amongst those who differ greatly when there is unity in Christ. And so whilst we may be different genetically and culturally and ethnically, if we are in Christ, there can be true unity, even though we may know disunity with those who are of our kith and kin. That's what the gospel does. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in Christ. 
And so the brethren in view here are very much the brethren of those who are the redeemed of God. And where do we see that unity expressed particularly? We must surely see it expressed in the context of the local church. As a local church, we gather together and we say we are brethren together with Christ. He is our elder brother, and we are brethren together with him. And thus, if you're going to rightly apply this psalm today, you must apply it in the context of our own situation here as a local church. I want to pause, therefore, and just reflect upon the consideration of church unity as taught in one particular local church. And that is in Paul's teaching to the church in Philippi. So please turn over now to, to Philippians chapter 2. When you read the first four verses of chapter 2, you realize very quickly that the biggest threat to the church fulfilling its function is disunity. At the end of chapter 1, Paul has emphasized to the church in Philippi their obligation to be evangelical in their thrust. He says in verse number 27, Only let your conversation, chapter 1, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And the word conversation that's used there is the is a word that's connected to our word political that refers to citizenship. And what he's saying to them is, as citizens of Rome, because they were proud of that, they were a Roman colony, as citizens of Rome, Rome, they were to make sure that their living was that which is worthy of the gospel. And in their living of the gospel, they were then united in striving together. Look at the words. One spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. As a church, they had that obligation not to be united only for the purpose of being friendly and not being sad with each other, but the purpose of their unity was for the good of the gospel. They had the heart of the gospel at the heart of their unity. And their unity was based upon the one mind, one spirit, with one purpose, namely the promotion of the gospel of Christ. Now Paul he makes the point that such faithful evangelical witness will indeed lead to opposition. And they are in verse 20, 28 to be not terrified by your adversaries. There are those who will bring conflict to the church of Christ. And you may have to suffer for Christ's sake. Verse number 29. And thus he acknowledges that there's danger for the church of Christ from those who are outside. But then he goes on to deal with the issue of trouble that may arise within the church and disunity that will hinder them from fulfilling their proper function. Now the theme of chapter 2, at least the early part, is absolutely the theme of unity. Verse 2 says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And he's not diverting from his initial theme of chapter 1. You go down to verse number 14 of chapter 2. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. 
that ye may be harm, blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life. That sounds terribly familiar. Sounds very much like a connection of theme from chapter 1, verse 27. You're striving together. But as you strive together, you do it without disputings. Because you're going to hold forth the word of life. Unity is required for you to fulfill your purpose as a local church. That's what Paul's telling people in Philippi. And so... Whilst in chapter 2 we have the most glorious paragraph regarding the exaltation of our blessed Saviour, it is all in the context of teaching them regarding the subject of unity, like-mindedness, same love of one accord and of one mind. He gives the foundation for that exhortation in verse 1. Any consolation, any comfort, any fellowship, any bowels and mercies, Again, we'll come back to this next week in the will of God. But what he's saying is, since you share the same blessings in Christ, then in light of what you share in Christ, there should be this like-mindedness. And from that, he then gives them the glorious example of what it is to know true unity. Because true unity is found by having the mind of Christ But the mind of Christ is shown in Philippians chapter 2 to be a a mind that sacrifices self for the well-being of others. So we're going to close now for tonight. But in simple terms, what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 2 is that the ministry of the gospel depends upon unity. And unity depends upon humility. And that's what he's teaching them in light of Christ's example is that if you are going to know blessing of God in your ministry, then you must do so in unity, and you will not know unity unless you know humility. That's the theme. That's what Paul is saying here in Philippians chapter 2. And so if we are to enjoy good and pleasant unity, then the Word of God must come to us with the force and the challenge that we make sure that we enjoy and know humility in Christ. Because when we know the blessing of true unity, it promotes the work of God. It gladdens the hearts of God's people. Paul says, fulfill you my joy. And it follows the example of Christ. God is pleased to bless his people with unity and to bless his people and others through that unity. That's the Psalm 133. Amen. May God bless his word. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We preach Christ crucified.